James shows us a faith that works. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Faith that works. This is the big finale of this teaching series. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 20 as we wrap up this series here this weekend, talking about healing. Let me start off by uh, asking you to, to think about this question. If I were to listen in on your private conversations with God, what would they tell me about, what would they tell me about your faith in God, the depth of your relationship with God, your perception of God, or even the struggles you may be currently wrestling with. You can learn a lot about a person by how they pray or by what they pray for. A book I read a number of years ago was uh, by Charles Swindoll, and in that book, it was called uh, Laugh Again. It was kind of a survey, uh, a study of Philippians. And he wrote about a letter that he received from a woman, and in that book, let me read that letter. He says, uh, th this woman said, this was part of the letter. She said, humor has had a lot, has done a lot to help me in my spiritual life. How could I have reared 12 children starting at age 32 and not have had a sense of humor? <laughs> That's true. And after your talk last night, she's speaking to uh, Charles Swindoll. After your talk last night, I was enjoying some relaxed moments with friends I met here. I told them I got married at age 31. I didn't worry about getting married. I left my future in God's hands. But I must tell you, every night I hung a pair of men's pants on my bed and knelt down to pray this prayer. Father in heaven, hear my prayer and grant it if you can. I've hung a pair of trousers here. Please fill them with a man. So the, the following Sunday, I read that humorous letter to our congregation and they enjoyed it immensely. I happened to notice the different reactions of a father and his teenage son. The dad laughed out loud, but the son seemed preoccupied. On that particular Sunday, the mother of this family had stayed home with their sick daughter. Obviously, neither father nor son mentioned the story <clears throat> because a couple of weeks later, I received a note from the mother. Dear Chuck, I'm wondering if I should be worried about something. It has to do with our son. For the last two weeks, I've, I have noticed that before our son turns the lights out and goes to sleep at night, he hangs a woman's bikini <laughs> over the foot of the bed. Should I be concerned about this? So your prayers tell you really a lot about what you pray for, how you pray. It has a lot to do with what's going on in your heart. You can learn a lot about a person by how they pray. Take a look at uh, the intro to your sermon notes. So if my prayer life reflects the quality of my relationship with God, so here's the question for us this morning, then how can I have a prayer life that is filled with passion and power and the presence of God? I think we all want that. Why would that be so important? Because, next thought on your notes, along with the Word of God and the people of God, nothing will bring greater healing now listen to me, nothing will bring greater healing. That's the title of this weekend's message, Healing. Nothing will bring greater healing to our, our spirit, soul, and body like communication, conversation, and communion with God, interacting with the God of the galaxies. Prayer. Nothing will bring greater healing to your life other than the people of God, hanging out with the people of God, and, and diving into the Word of God prayer, talking to the God of the galaxies will bring healing to our lives, our spirit, our body, our souls. And so here's the three questions we're looking at. When, when should we pray? And I think that James helps us with this. He says, when should we pray? What happens when we pray? You need to know that because oftentimes we don't pray because we don't think anything happens when we pray. So what happens when we pray? And then what kind of person can pray? In other words, what kind of person can get results in their prayer? 
And he lays all of that out for us. He's, he uh, gives us the answer to those questions. That's where we're headed. But before we read our text and unpack these notes, let's pray once again. Would you bow your heads with me? So God, we are delighted to be here today in your presence. We love your presence. We know that there is no father on earth that wants the very best for his child as much as you want for us. God, you are quicker to hear than we are to ask, and you want to give far more than we could ever deserve or dream. And there's no greater joy in life than fellowship with you, than knowing you, than intimacy with you, hearing you speak, sharing our heart, having you guide, sensing your presence and your power. So we pray this morning, teach us the healing power of prayer, not just for our lives, but also for those we pray for. We pray these things in your son's beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. Let's, uh, let me read through the text here, and um, starting chapter 5, verse 13, and he's answering these three questions for us. You'll see as I work through this, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I, I memorized that verse. I memorized it in a little bit different way. The prayers of a righteous Righteous person are powerful and effective. That's what he's saying. Things happen when we pray. That's what he's saying here. It's giving us hope in our prayer. And that's, that's worth memorizing that, that verse there, the second part of verse 16. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently like it, uh, that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. And then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. These are the last two verses of this uh, letter written by James. And he says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so uh, let's work through these notes, and um, here's the first question. When should we pray? It's, here's your first fill in the blank on your notes. When we are hurting or happy emotionally, when we are hurting or happy emotionally. Look at verse 13 again. Keep your Bibles open, and we'll be referring back to the text. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. The word here for suffering, is anyone among you suffering, the Greek word here means to endure hardship. It means to be in distress. In distress. When you're in distress, he says, pray. It's a good time to pray. It's like the pilot who radioed the tower. He said, pilot to tower. I'm 30 miles from the airport, 600 feet altitude. I am out of fuel and descending rapidly. Please advise over Tower came back on the radio. Tower to pilot. Repeat after me. Our Father who art in heaven, <laughs> hallowed be thy name. Yeah, that's, that's probably good advice, but there wasn't much hope there. But when you're in distress, what are you to do? You're to do, as we talked about last week, Psalm 55, 22, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be moved or to be shaken cast your burdens upon the Lord. I like the language of that. That word cast almost speaks of uh, sometimes we just kind of hang on to our problems. But he's like, get rid of those things. Give them over to God. Oh, my goodness. Give them to him. Cast your burdens upon the Lord. Sometimes there's almost kind of a violence. There's a struggle that goes on as we give those things over to God. Cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not, not allow the righteous to be shaken. My dad passed away peacefully November the 20th, 7.45 in the evening, a week ago this last Tuesday. And I have to tell you that my family has been experiencing the love and peace of God amazingly because of the love and the prayers of this church family. 
You guys have rallied around us tremendously with cards and love and support and prayer. We have felt your prayers supernaturally. My mom's doing a fantastic job at grieving well, suffering well, and as we're kind of working through this, and of course we have on top of this also uh, that uh, Nancy's dad is just about ready to, to go and be with the Lord. I'll talk to you about him in just a, a little bit. But in all of this craziness and this trauma and this loss, God has been indescribably good. And, and prayer, it's through prayer, it's through his presence, it's through his power. And uh, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. That's a promise. He will not let the righteous be shaken. And so there's stability, there's strength, there's serenity that comes into our lives as a result of, of praying and talking to God and interacting with him. And uh, so let me ask you this question, because he says here, first of all, he says, so we, when we're we to pray, we're to pray when we're hurting. We, we've got that one. I think most of us, for the most part, I mean, some of us have to be encouraged to do this, but man, that should be the, the first thing you do. Man, when you're going through distress, take it to God, take it to God. You might have to do that multiple times throughout the day, keep taking it to him over and over again. But, but, but I think the other problem is do we come to him when we are happy emotionally? So when should we pray? When we are hurting or happy emotionally? He says, let him pray when he's suffering. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So discuss this with the person sitting next to you. And let me, let me give you this question. What does it say about my prayer life if I come to God when I'm hurting, but not when I'm happy? What does that say about my prayer life? Just real quick, I wanted you to kind of think about that. Turn to the person next to you and see what they say. So it seems like I, I want to just kind of think about that because our tendency is we always come running to him, which is nothing wrong with that. I think it's really good that we run to him when we're in distress. But what about when you're happy? Where do you go? Do, do you use this as an opportunity to celebrate his goodness? That do you see everything, every good and perfect gift comes from God? Do you see that? And do you use those gifts? Those are gifts from God and opportunities to, to adore him and to celebrate him. That's what he's talking about here. I think that's important. And, and what it tells me that if I only come to him when I'm in distress, and I very seldom come to him when I'm happy, it just it means that he's an end. He's, he's not the end. He's a means to the end rather than being the end in my life. I'm using God, and getting, getting from him is more important than being with him. And let me just say this. Being with him is better by far. That's the best thing about the Christian life is that we have him. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. And that's what he's inviting us into. Don't just come to him when you have problems. Come to him when, when life is going well. Celebrate him. Practice his presence. And... Um, and so I think what he's saying here is that prayer is not only a great stress reliever, but it's also, I think, a mood elevator. It's also, it, it completes our joy. There's a completion to our joy. And if you, know, if you notice this, enjoyment naturally overflows in praise. Have you noticed that? You know, when I picked up this quad shot mocha this morning, it just overflowed with praise. It was just like, hmm, that is good. This natural overflow. Thank you, God, for all these great drinks that we have here. And I mean, so it should be just kind of natural. I was talking to my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law's enjoyment, he's here to see his dad as his dad is dying. That's Nancy's brother. And my brother-in-law's enjoyment of Dallas Cowboys beating New Orleans Saints on Monday night football this last, this last week overflowed with praise. And it was just like, I was shocked, you know, I was shocked that they, that they won, but, uh, but, uh, see, my, yeah, okay, okay, Green Bay Packer fan there. Uh, they're not doing so well, though. 
But I mean, what, what happens when we're joyful, it overflows with praise. It's natural for us to overflow with praise. I believe that the general disposition of a Christian should be praise. If, if, if we begin to see every good and perfect gift comes from God, that's 117 of, of James, this book. If we begin to see that everything that we experience in life that's good and perfect, the perfect would be Jesus, but the, the many good things, that they are gifts from God and pointers to God, we would use that. See, our praise would not terminate on the, on the good thing, but it would roll on up and be an opportunity to praise God and to adore him and it would be a great worship experience. And that's what he, I think he's getting at. And I think that, and so just, just the good things that we have in life are pretty amazing. But, if, but you could spend the rest of your life and all the way into eternity just thanking God for all the, the perfect things that we have through Jesus Christ. Just our salvation alone would be enough to, to send you through the ceiling if you really begin to think about that and reflect on it and begin to give praise for those things. And that's what he's saying here. It tells us in Psalm 92.1, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. So it's a good thing. It's a positive thing. It's a healthy thing to give praise to the Lord, to sing praises to your name almost high. So he's just saying, this is good therapy. To, be, to praise God. Psalm 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So, that, so, so to me, I'm thinking, if I really understood what I have in Jesus Christ, I should have almost a perpetual praise, attitude of perpetual praise, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of what's going on, because he's bigger than all of my circumstances. He's with me, never to leave me or forsake me. And so, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So, praise is joyful preoccupation with God. I believe it's mental and emotional health made audible. You're, you're kind of putting on display what's going on deep inside of your heart that, man, you're just enjoying life. You're enjoying all the blessings that God has given you. So, when should we pray? When we are hurting or happy emotionally. But also, number two, we, when we are hurting physically. We're talking sickness here. Let me read verses 15, 14 through 15. And I'm kind of delving into now an area that's very controversial in our culture today. And so I'm going to try to clear, clear th get through the fog of, of this and the confusion. I had someone come up to me last night and tell me, thank you for clarifying some things that had been brought a lot of guilt and shame on him. And so let me kind of walk you through this. Verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. The word sick here, the Greek, New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek literally means to be without strength or ill to the point of being incapacitated. So you don't call the elders every time, you know, you, you get a cold or a fever or whatever. There's a point to that. But when you're incapacitated, when you hit really devastating times physically, you're sick, you've got cancer, you've got the diagnosis or, or whatever. And you'll notice here, the sick person initiates the call, which assumes local church membership. And the spiritual leaders are to anoint and pray for the sick person. So that could be the leaders within your small group. It could be on a, during a weekend service. It could be our once a month uh, eldership meeting where we have people come in and we anoint them with oil and we pray for them. So it can be any of those settings. But, but in Scripture, you need to know this. In Scripture, oil is both medicine and a symbol of the Spirit of God. It is medicine, and you see this in the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. What did the Good Samaritan do with the guy that had been beaten up left on the side of the road? Brought oil soothe his wounds. It was kind of a form of, of medicine. But it's also a symbol of the Spirit of God as used in anointing kings in 1 Samuel 16. Now, at, at DBCC, at Desert Breeze Community Church, we practice both of those, the ceremony of anointing people with oil upon request and also seeking the best medical procedure of the day, such as antibiotics and various other medications, surgery, therapy, and so on. Now, does God still heal today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Both naturally and supernaturally. Through doctors and then sometimes just through a miracle in our lives. Through medicine and a miracle. And oftentimes when I pray for people, I say, God, either through medicine or a miracle or the combination of both, heal them. 
That's how I pray. And um, now look on your notes here. There's three kinds of sickness. So as we're, t- as we're talking about sickness, the Bible identifies three kinds of sickness. There's sickness for death. I'll let you read these verses on your own. I'm not going to read them now. We don't have the time, but you can read them on your own as you study this out. But sickness for death, 1 John 5, 16 and John eleven four. There is a sickness for the purpose of taking you home. And uh, all of us will eventually experience that unless the Lord comes back. Okay? Uh, if he comes back, that's first class. If he takes you home through sickness, that's second class, okay? <laughs> okay. Sorry. Just had to say that. So a lot of us say, come back, Jesus. Please come and get me. And he might say, uh, no, you're going I mean, to come to me, Okay? And it's going to be through sickness. So there is that sickness for death. Then there's the sickness for discipline. I think I filled these in for you because I just wanted you to think, think deeply about them just for a moment, not have to be busy trying to write these down. 1 Corinthians 11, 28 through 32. Remember, they were taking communion and they were having their big love feast and there was a lot of abuse going on and all of that. And so God, God said, Jesus, uh, Paul actually said uh, to them from God, saying, hey, some of you are sick and some of you are dying because you guys are messed up and you're not... You're not doing communion like you should, and you're mistreating one another, and there's pride and rebellion among you, and so God allowed that sickness to kind of waken them to, to bring some discipline into their life. And then there's also sickness for the glory of God. That's, that's John eleven four sickness that God has allowed simply because he wants to heal you and let it be a testimony to God. Now, my dad had a sickness that eventually took him home. And as I stated, all of us, all of us will eventually experience that. There will be a sickness that will take us to be with him. And my dad is celebrating. But let me just talk to you a little bit about Nancy's dad, who's uh, currently in uh, Pam Clement, who uh, her and her husband Tim attend here, and she's our our hospice nurse. She was was the hospice nurse for my dad, and now she's the hospice uh, nurse for my father-in-law. She's a beautiful a gal who loves Jesus, and she's a great nurse to be there and has just really ministered to my family through this whole process. And um, she told uh, Nancy this last week that he's probably going to expire here really, really soon. And she says, and she does this. She's a hospice nurse. She sees this all the time, and so he's not looking good. He's not doing well. But I need to tell you a little bit about Nancy's dad. Um, He's got stage 4 cancer. And as I stated, he's currently in the care of hospice. He's already done all the treatment he can. His body's too weak to do, go through any more treatment. It's not actually working anyway. And he's experiencing sickness for discipline. Unless God heals him in it, it will be a sickness for death. Now, my father-in-law, and don't, don't misunderstand me, I love him dearly. But he was a godless man who was obnoxious, hard to get along with, alienated everybody from him. I mean, my wife and I were about the, really the only ones that continued to interact with him, and we'd get a hold of him, and we'd go and see him at, at Christmas time. And the guy would always have, uh, you know, some obnoxious thing to say to me. And I, I, I let it like water on a duck's back. I loved him anyway, didn't say anything back, didn't respond back. And Nancy still loved her daddy, even through all of this. And, and, and yet you got to know this, that this man had good health, he wasn't on any medications or anything, though he drank and smoked, gambled, you know, most of his life, at least for the last 20, 30 years, and now he's got stage four cancer, and when he got that, that diagnosis, we were with him, and he wept, and we begin to watch God do a work in his heart that was amazing as he began to repent and turn his heart to Jesus. It was amazing. I told my wife, I said, we got a front row seat to watch what God does best, and that's bring hearts back to him. Now, he could have taken him out at any time. God could, but in God's mercy, allowed him to have stage four cancer, and he wept, and then he began to say things like, man, I can't sleep nights. I'm just haunted by all the bad things I've done. And we're like, praise God. <laughs> Jesus is coming after you, man. We didn't say that to him, but we were kind of like thinking, we're like, oh, my goodness, this is awesome. And he's just tormented. And he goes, I don't know how 
God could ever forgive me. And we're like, what? Of course he can. I mean, so we're just laying the gospel out there to him and we're just, and we prayed with him and he repented and he's poured his heart out to God. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, praise God. Praise God. And so just to show you that repentance has really taken place in this guy's life, he just recently, he's on his deathbed, he recently called his wife, Nancy's mom, and said, I need to talk to her. And he said to her, you didn't deserve how I treated you for so many years. And he did. He abandoned her. He was horrible. He says, you didn't deserve that. And she looked at him and said, I forgive you. I forgive you. Nancy's mom attends here. She'll be here in the second service. Her, son, her, her brother was here last night. And so they're all seeing this, and they're going, whoa, what in the world is this all about? And God is using that sickness in his life to bring his heart to him. He's going to be, soon be with Jesus. And that's, that's amazing. That's a miracle. I'll take that because eternity is a whole lot more than just this short little life that the Bible says it's just a breath. And so, so that's just a little bit. And so here's the crazy thing about this. So sickness for the glory of God. Oh, my goodness, I've seen the glory of God. I've seen the glory of God not only in my dad. Through those five years of my mom's, my mom's pain and suffering with the loss of my dad. And, and from time to time, my dad would have a, a coherent moment. And he would say, I don't know why God still has me here. And I'd say, it's for his glory, Dad. It's for his glory. We don't understand it. And let me tell you, I have seen the glory of God through my dad and through the difficulty and through the pain of my mom. Because when, you, you see, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. That's the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians. I've experienced that personally. And I've seen the glory of God. I've seen God come in there, swoop in and love on us and strengthen us and help us time and time again. That sickness was to reveal God to us even more clearly than ever. And my, my faith is soaring more so than ever before just because of what I'm seeing as, I, as, I, as Nancy and I have this front row seat. And so there's four attitudes towards healing. We need to get through this part here so that you kind of understand this because there's a lot of craziness in our culture today. The first one is the sensationalist. So the sensationalist, lights, camera, action, emotionally charged, atmosphere, flamboyant, healer, people are put on display. That's not one that we, we embrace here. In fact, Jesus even said, just because people can do all these great things doesn't mean that I know them. In fact, there'll be those that will do all these great things and I'll say to them, I don't know you. That's Matthew 7, through 23. The next one is the confessionalist. It is God's will for everyone to be healed. That's what they would say. If you're not healed, it's either sin or a lack of faith. I had someone uh, come up to me last night and say, I was part of churches that said that and they beat the living daylights out of me and it made me never even want to go back to church again. And I go, well, that's heresy. I don't know where they get that. It's just crazy. But that's part of that health and wealth gospel nonsense that's heretical in our day and time. Not to say that when you go through sickness, it's a good opportunity to examine your life, to look, look at your sin in your life. We all have sin. We all struggle with sin. And also look at your faith. But usually it's not because of either one. First of all, it only takes the Faith of a mustard seed size to move a mountain. So we know it's not that. We'll talk about that as we work through that. Nor is it somehow God's paying us back for our sin. That's called double jeopardy. Jesus already paid for all of my sin. So I'm not having to pay for it. But, it, but there could be some discipline in that. And we just we need to be wise about it and say, God, I know that you're, you're wanting to draw my heart closer to you. I know that you haven't abandoned me because, because if you took care of my worst problem, which was being separated from you, and you sent Jesus to rescue me, I know you're not going to abandon me now. So it's just gospel logic, and you've got to use that gospel logic as you kind of work through that. And so, in fact, let me give you a verse here, just for those out there that might hear this message that are proponents of, of this idea, of this confessionalist kind of mindset. 1 Peter 4.19, it says, Therefore, let those who suffer... We'll come back and I'll define that word, suffer, according to God's will. Notice what it says, according to God's will. Those that suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So he's just saying in that, he's saying that there is suffering that, will be, that is according to God's will. 
Now, the word suffer here, is a, it's an interesting word, and the word suffer means difficult circumstances or, if you look at the Thayer's Greek lexicon, it also means sickness. So it's involving not only uh, bad circumstances, but it can also involve just, I'm sick. My body physically, and he says, if it's part of God's will. So let me read it again. Therefore, let those who suffer, whether it be bad circumstances or sickness, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If you, if you approached everybody that was sick and said, well, you're not healed because you either have sin or you lack faith, you are playing the role of Job's miserable comforters who God got down on them heavily at the end of Job. Read the rest of the book. We talked about it last week. He came down hard on them, and he said, you guys have misrepresented me. Job, my servant, has spoken truth about me. And so you, you see that contrast there. So you don't want to be part of that club, Job's miserable comforters, okay? So the next one is dispensationalist. Healing was only for New Testament times. Hebrews 13, 8 disputes that. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's other verses that talk about that. So you got the sensationalists, the confessionalists, the dispensationalists. Here's where we are. This is what we believe at Desert Breeze, the realist. It is always in God's power to heal, but it is not always in God's purpose to heal. So it's always in God's power to heal, but, not, but it is not always in God's purpose to heal. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, Paul's thorn in the flesh. Remember, he cried out three times. It was so overwhelming to him. He cries out three times, God, take this from me. And what did he say? He said, my power is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient. I'm going to see you through this. So here's what I've, I've learned through the years is that, listen, God, sometimes God, sometimes God stills the storm. Sometimes he, he, he says, yes, I'm going to heal you. And other times he calms the storm in his child. Sometimes he calms the storm. And other times he calms the storm in his child. He gives us what we need to get through the difficulty. And that's what we see in the example of 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, Paul's thorn in the flesh. We also have 1 Timothy 5.23, Timothy's chronic stomach problems. I think he was a little bit of a worrier, and I think he had some major issues there. And, and, uh, he, and if two guys lacked sin and had a lot of faith, it would be those two, Paul and Timothy. But we see them struggling. So, so this is what we must do. We ask boldly, we surrender completely, because we know that God will give to us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. To want anything other than that is assumed omniscience. If you weren't here with us last week, you need to go online and listen to that. I talk about what assumed omniscience is. It's thinking that you're smarter than God. Now listen to me. Everybody look up here. You're not smarter than God, okay? <laughs> you're not smarter than God. And I know things didn't work out as you planned, but they worked out as he planned. And he has a purpose behind all that he does in our lives. And you will not maybe even understand that this side of eternity. But the moment you come face to face with the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without you, you're going to go, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. You are perfect. You are righteous. You are holy in all that you do, and you will celebrate for all eternity. And you'll look back and say, my light and momentary trials have achieved for me an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And you will just go, wow. And, and, you're gonna, and there'll probably be a moment where you go, I wish I would have had more faith, and I live by faith and not by sight. I was trying to make sense of all of that, and it really got me down, and I was all depressed, and I was anxious, and I was worried. When you were in control all of this time, working for my good and your glory, God, help me to see that now. Help me to see that now. And, and, and that's, that's his plan is always better, whether it fits with your plan or not. He has a better plan. Does God still heal today? Absolutely. My asthma that I nearly died from as a youngster. I almost died from asthma. It still takes people out. On the fire department, I went on a 21-year-old that died of asthma, from an asthma attack. 
We, we worked feverishly trying to save him, and he died. 21 years old. How about Amy Augustine's healing? How about Amon Murtaugh being healed? I mean, I could give you a list of people here at this church that have experienced healing. My sister has a phenomenal testimony. 15 years ago, she went to the dock, and she had a cancer in her abdomen about the size of a basketball, and... Um, and the doctor said, this is a very aggressive cancer, and you only have six months to a year to live. And I mean, she was devastated. We were all devastated. So we got to praying, and, uh, and, and you, you'd have to hear her story because just the details as God began to guide her through this. And, and 15 years later, my baby sister is still here to torment us. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's still here. And it's a miracle. We were talking about it the other night. And she goes, it still brings chills to me. It's just like, I'm, I'm just blown away that God, would, that God would heal me like that. Because the doctor had written, written me off. And it was like, my goodness sakes. And so when should we pray? When we are hurting or happy emotionally, when we are hurting physically, and when we are hurting spiritually. When we are hurting spiritually. Look at verses 15 through 16. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. So healthy, authentic people do not pretend to have it all together. None of us have it all together. We all are works in progress. We, we need a lot of help. And so image projection and impression management is a strong sinful tendency within all of us. That's why he's talking about confessing our sins. And, and there is no healing in hiding is what this text is saying. There's no healing in hiding. Confession brings healing, verse 16. So therefore, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, and you will be what? Healed. So confession means we stop pretending, stop playing games, we take off our mask. Diedrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone, but in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and, and seclusion of the heart. So there's, there's nothing quite like being fully known as we confess and fully loved fully loved in that condition as we struggle with sin. And listen to what one other writer put, uh, put it this way. Concealment, concealment makes the soul a swamp, but confection, confession is how you drain it. So, so being real is often done simply as kind of a last resort. I often hear people say things like, I was so desperate, so I had to tell someone. Well, don't wait until you're desperate. You should be telling people regularly in your life. There are two kinds of confession. There's personal and relational. So the personal kind of confession is just, is just uh, you're being authentic with all, but you have deep disclosure with a few trusted friends who you say, man, I'm struggling with this hurt or this habit or this hang-up. Could you pray for me? Could you hold me accountable? I'm really, I can't get over this. And so we need that. Relational uh, confession happens when we recognize that we've said something, we've done something that has been offensive to someone, and we go to them and we say, man, I was an idiot to say what I said. I'm so sorry I, I broke your heart or I said those things that were so offensive to you. And, and, so, and so that's important. Now, now, how are we to respond when someone confesses to us, when we have people that sit down and confess to us, not, not with a lecture, not condemning, not trying to fix them, but we are to pray. Confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another. Pray for one another, and you will be healed. And so we're open. We're receptive. Say, hey, let's pray. Let's talk to God about this. Thank you for sharing that with me. That's how you respond. Now, you notice verses 19 through 20. He also says, and I think it goes with this, my brothers, if any one, of, if any one among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering uh, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about accountability. Not only are we to confess our sins to one another, but we're to hold each other accountable. Accountability is a gift we give to one another to promote growth and to prevent drift that we could never know by ourselves. So here's the question. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, you are. You see a brother that's stumbling and struggling and they're drifting off? Talk to them lovingly. Try to bring them back. 
Talk sense to them. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. They actually think they're going to find greater happiness pursuing something in creation rather than pursuing the creator. So try to talk with them and say, no, 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 no. Come on. Let's get back to the creator. Let's come to him. Only he can satisfy you. And so we have that responsibility. Listen, guys, come to the men's breakfast. You're not going to survive. Guys, you're not going to survive spiritually without a band of brothers around you, supporting you, loving you, holding you accountable. Same goes for you ladies. That's why we do life groups. That's why we have small groups here. And so that's important, really important. I love how James, and I love how the Bible does this. There's this integration of soul, body, and spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 makes that clear. The Bible is not reductionistic. It's not simplistic. It's very multidimensional in its healing. And so it covers all three of those areas, soul, body, spirit. You need all three. I mean, take, for instance, depression. If you, if you struggle with depression, it can be a body problem. It can be a chemistry thing. You might need medication. You might need to get more sleep. You might need to exercise. You might, might need to eat differently. But it could also be a combination of any of those. It could be that plus something spiritual coming against you so that someone needs to pray for you. But it could also be soul in the fact that you're not dealing with a lot of the hits you're taking in life and you're stockpiling those down inside of you. And you've pushed them down inside of you. You're not processing, processing those things. And then before long, you're depressed. You're going to be medicating that through whatever means. And so that's, the Bible just does a beautiful job. Body, soul, spirit, soul, body, spirit, as we saw here. Now, okay, I spent most of the time on that front end, and I did that purposely because now we're going to race through the rest of this. So get ready to write. What happens when we pray? Verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So what is a righteous person? So it seems to be, he seems to qualify that. So the, a righteous person. A righteous person is someone who has been made right with God by grace through faith in Christ's saving work in their behalf. Not our works. It's putting your faith in Christ's works in your behalf. It's, it's amazing. That's the gospel. You'll never be able to earn a right standing with God, but it's already been earned for you through Christ. And so when God sees you, he sees Jesus because Jesus took all of your sin and you have his righteousness. That's the righteous person. And so here's the first one, number one. So what happens when we pray? Prayer is the greatest privilege of the Christian life. It's the greatest privilege of the Christian life. Hebrews 4.16, because of what Christ has done, it says, let us boldly come before the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There is nothing greater that God could do for you than to reconcile you to himself. And he's done that through Jesus Christ. There is nothing greater that God could give to you than the gift of himself. We have the presence of God in our lives, never to leave us or forsake us. I don't care what you're going through. His presence and power and peace in you is greater, greater than anything that you will ever face in your life. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. That's why prayer is the greatest privilege of the Christian life. Number two, prayer is the greatest power of the Christian life. So the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. James 4, 2, we have not because we ask not. So here's what I use prayer for regularly. I pray a lot. I love praying. I love communing with God. I love my conversation and interaction with God. Prayer makes the truths of God real to my heart. It's one thing to know that God loves you. It's altogether another to experience his love in your heart. So prayer is, is, is a kind of basking in the reality of the truths of what the Bible says are true about you and I and what God has done for us. And God begins to make it alive to our heart. Prayer makes things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen if we didn't pray is what he's saying. Prayer makes things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. So listen, when you pray, things are happening. That's what he's saying. So don't stop praying. You might not be able to see it, but God is working. That's the promise that we have. And that's, that is powerful. We have been given the amazing privilege of engaging with God in such a way that we have an astounding promise that our request can bring to pass events in the universe that would otherwise not happen if we didn't pray. That's the promise. That's the promise. Number three, what prayer can do is what God can do. 
What prayer can do is what God can do. No Christian can, can make a greater impact than that of his prayer life. I can do more than pray after I've prayed, but I really can't do more than pray until I've prayed. I love what uh, William Cooper says, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. So what kind of person can pray? Well, verses 17 through 18, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, if you study his life, Old Testament character, 1 Kings 18 through 19, Elijah goes from standing up against 400 prophets of Baal, the whose God is bigger contest. You guys are probably familiar with that. He goes from that to this amazing courage to running for his life from one woman named Jezebel. And all of us would run from her, okay? And so he's like running scared. He runs to the other side of the desert, experiences doubt, depression, fear, anger, loneliness, and worry, and prays for God to kill him. I can relate to that. Praise God that when he says, we're just like Elijah. Yep, yep, I am. Yet in spite of his doubt, depression, worry, and fear, God still used him through his prayers. Here's the next point in your notes. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things through prayer. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. No Christian is greater than his prayer life. You are no greater than your prayer life. The more you spend time with Jesus, the more you will become like Jesus, and it will certainly be evident to others that you have been with Jesus. Acts 4, 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Here's the next one. In prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. Verse 17b, he says, he prayed fervently. It is our earnestness, not our eloquence, that matters most to God. And so what our prayer life needs to move from, oftentimes, too often, it's a meaningless, monotonous monologue. It needs to be a dynamic dialogue with a living Savior. He hears you. He knows you are interacting with him when you pour your heart out to him. Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. That's God speaking to us. He says, I don't want you just to go through the motions here. Check the church box. I want your heart. I want your heart's deepest loyalties and affections. So when you go home today or this next week and you go into your closet or that place where you like to pray, pour your heart out to him. He will meet you there. He wants your heart. Give him your heart. You might not even be able to put it into words. You don't need the words. Just give him your heart. Say, oh God, I don't even know what to say, but I need you. I love you. I want to bask in the reality of your love for me. Number three, you don't have to be a spiritual giant to get giant answers from God. He prayed, it did not rain. That's verse 17, verse 18. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. Matthew 17, 20 really just basically says, mustard seed faith can move mountains. See, it is not the size of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters most. Now imagine you are on a high cliff and lose your footing, and as you begin to fall, you reach for a branch. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. The weakest faith gets the same strong Christ as does the strongest faith. See, the more you get to know the object of your faith, the more your faith will be strong. Now, who's the object of our faith? Listen to me. Everybody look up here. The object of your faith. Listen, he is a loving father. He's an intimate friend. He's a patient teacher. He's a generous provider. He's a gentle guide. He's an amazing sustainer. He's sovereign. He's all-knowing and wise. He has an everlasting love for you. He's ever-present with you. He's holy, he's faithful, he's unchanging. If you could get a glimpse of the Father heart of God for you, if you could understand what he thinks about you, how he feels about you, what he wants to do in and through your life, oh my goodness, 
You would pour your heart out to him. You would live your life for him. You would find your deepest satisfaction in him. You would. Nothing would keep you from him. Here's what I want to do here this morning. We're going to do a group prayer. You guys ready for this? A big group prayer, group hug. Big group hug. And so just show of hands, how many could use some prayer here this morning, maybe emotionally, physically, or spiritually? Show of hands, show of hands, show of hands. Okay, those of you that have raised your hand, would you stand up right where you are? Stand up right where you are. And those of you that are around them, that you saw them, they're standing up right now, gather around them. Let's all gather around them. Big group hug. Put your hand on their back, their shoulder. And grab the person's hand next to you if you'd like. And I'm going to do a, a prayer for everyone here that raised their hand. Maybe you did, needed to raise your hand and you need that prayer. Then, then receive this prayer even now. And so let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your words of encouragement. And God, your word promises us that the prayers of a righteous people are powerful and effective. Verse 16. And you've also told us that we have not because we ask not. And so we are now asking. And because we take refuge in Jesus' saving work in our behalf, we come boldly before your throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to meet the needs of those who are suffering emotionally, physically, and, and spiritually, both here right now and those even listening online. And we pray that you would pour out your endless supply of love and joy and peace and grace and forgiveness and healing and strength and comfort and power and motivation and transformation to each and every person this morning, this weekend, and, and wholeness in and through Christ Jesus. Help us to see more clearly than ever that no sin or suffering is a match for your rescuing, redeeming, and restoring grace. And we ask all of these things in your son's powerful and beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Praise God. Let's give God glory. Praise God. God is good. He loves us. He's indescribably good. God bless you. Love you guys. Have a great weekend.